If you've not been with us before, our habit is to preach through, in consecutive exposition, New Testament books in our morning services and Old Testament books in our evening service, and to do that 52 weeks a year, yes, even on Super Bowl Sunday. So I will see you tonight at 6 p.m. This morning, you will need your Bible. You'll need it open. And we will examine this text in great detail, and there are things that are confusing and controverted, and so let me ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and while you're doing that, I would ask you to pray for me over the next several days. I'll be flying to Newcastle, England, to assist one of our missionaries, Ben Wontrop, who is the pastor, the church planter of All Saints Presbyterian in Newcastle, England, and I will have the opportunity to preach there and to do elder and deacon training. And this weather is completely my fault because the Lord is using it just to prepare me for Newcastle, England. (laughs) The office of prophet, and I hope you have your Bible open, the office of prophet is one of the three great offices of Scripture, those being prophet, priest, and king. The office of prophet was instituted in Deuteronomy 18. Initially, the Lord had gathered the nation of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he spoke directly to them. But the people of God were afraid of his voice, and so they pled with the Lord if he would speak through Moses instead. God condescended to their request, and in so doing, he instituted the prophetic office. And I want you to notice what Peter's focus is on. Look carefully at our text. Again, this text this morning is going to take some heavy analysis. I hope you roll up your sleeves and are prepared to think God's thoughts after him. Notice in verse 10, for example, these men are labeled the prophets. We read, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And then again in verse 11, notice what we notice about these men. The prophets are who the Spirit was indwelling. We read of them, he was in them. And then again in verse 12, we read, the prophets are the ones to whom it was revealed. We read there in verse 12, to them it was revealed, them being the prophets. Prophets had two primary jobs. Their first was they proclaimed the revelation of God, that God had revealed truth to them, and they were the mouthpieces. They couldn't be creative and take that message that God had given them and shape that and make it more attractive or more acceptable. They were simply to give the message the way God gave it to them so that they could in truth say, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me saying, They were only to be faithful. They didn't have to be that bright or creative. They only had to be faithful to preach the message exactly as God gave it to them. Then they had a second job. That second job, they were to predict future events as the Lord showed them. Peter's concern in our text today is job number two. Look carefully at our text in verses 9 through 12. And this is, he's going to convince you that prophets were predictors of the future. In fact, Peter is going to tell us that the very best part of the Old Testament prophet's ministry was telling and writing of the person and work of Jesus Christ for your benefit and for mine. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth and help us to untangle some of these clauses in our text this morning. And so let's plead for that now. Almighty God, in your word are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
We ask now that you would open our eyes, that we may see the wonders of your being, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and choose the way of wisdom. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. The first premise I want you to see, and one that is controversial, it shouldn't be, but it is still, is that the Old Testament prophets were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 11 in our text, and we read these Old Testament prophets were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them. Look at those words and underline them and draw arrows to this, for this is one more evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament of believers. Now, Peter's a Trinitarian. He wants to talk of the functions of the different persons of the Trinity. Why does Peter, look at what the language he uses here in verse 11, why does Peter speak of the third person of the Godhead as the Spirit of Christ? Because it was the Holy Spirit-specific task then, and it is now, to always shine the spotlight on Jesus. Jesus said, didn't he, the night before he went to the cross in John 15, 26, the spirit of truth, he will testify of me. It is the Holy Spirit's delight to always turn the attention away from himself and to put the emphasis, the spotlight on the Lord Jesus. And so Peter distinctly teaches, look at verse 11 and have this this deep down in your stride. Peter distinctly teaches that the Old Testament prophets were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He says, the Spirit of Christ was in them. Now, under the influence of dispensationalism, which, by the way, is happily fading fast. It was a fad for about 150 years, but it's fading fast. Under the influence of dispensationalism, some evangelicals constructed a a doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament that bears little or no resemblance to their doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We need to bear in mind that the Holy Spirit, being God, is immutable. We need to be reminded, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4, that there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. The same Holy Spirit was, is, and always will be the saving agent who regenerates and applies salvation and then indwells those he saves. If there were not such a strong continuity in the Spirit's ministry, Jesus couldn't have taught the way he did. Keep one finger and look at John chapter 3, and I want you to see what Jesus teaches about the Spirit in the Old Testament. This is a vital point, and it's germane to what Peter is teaching in our text. In John chapter 3, you'll remember the, the nighttime encounter where Nicodemus one of the leaders of Israel, comes for fear and comes in a a secret questioning operation to the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3. And notice what Jesus teaches him about the Holy Spirit. Now at that point, when Nicodemus comes, Jesus and Nicodemus both, time-wise and in redemptive history, are both firmly still in the, the, the old covenant. Because Jesus hasn't yet inaugurated the new covenant, which he won't do until the night before he goes to the cross. And so notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, verse 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone, everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus asks a question. He's ignorant of the, of the work of the Holy Spirit in saving and indwelling. So Nicodemus turns to Jesus and asks in John 3, verse 9, how can these things be? And Jesus is incredulous. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, the people of God, and don't know these things? The context ends with Jesus reprimanding Nicodemus, one of the Jewish religious leaders and a teacher, for not knowing the Old Testament better. As one who supposedly knew God's word in the Old Testament, Nicodemus shouldn't have been so baffled by Jesus' explanation of the new birth and the Holy Spirit's role in regeneration and dwelling. Now, obviously, there were differences in the Holy Spirit's ministry on, before, and after the day of Pentecost, but the difference is largely one of scope. The difference in the Holy Spirit's ministry largely is that his ministry is now worldwide to every ethnic group, not one of function. In fact, listen to B.B. Warfield, that great Presbyterian theologian who said, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit taught by John the Baptist taught by our Lord, taught by his apostles, especially Paul, John, and Peter, was in every respect the same as that with which the Old Testament church was familiar. Now let me remind you the chief functions of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. David Wells, brilliant theologian, who if you don't know his works, you should read them. They're some of the best cultural analysis penned in the last 20 years. David Wells has identified... Seven main functions of the Old Testament, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Listen carefully to these and see if these don't resonate with you. Function number one, the Holy Spirit molded creation into shape and animated created beings. Function number two, the Holy Spirit controlled the course of nature in history. Function number three of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, he revealed God's truth and will to his prophets by direct communication. Function number four of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He taught God's people through these revelations the way of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Function number five in the Old Testament. Trying to build for you a theology of the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Spirit elicited personal response to God in the form of faith. Repentance, obedience, righteousness, obedience to God's instruction and fellowship with him through praise and prayer. Sixth function, he equipped individuals for leadership. It's vital that when we talk about Old Testament men as models of leadership, we don't somehow talk about them as self-made men. They made a significant supernatural impact only because they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, this point is vital, and this is why I'm belaboring it. I want you to actually see that the Bible says of many men in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit was indwelling them. This is, again, germane to Peter's point. So keep one finger here and look at Genesis chapter 40, 41. And I want to show you a couple of examples. In Genesis 41... After Joseph has given counsel to Pharaoh about how he should administer his nation during the famine, 
we read this of Joseph. Even other people can recognize it. Genesis 41, 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Even lost people can see the evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's wisdom and holiness. Or look at another example. Look at what's said of Joshua in Numbers 27. These are just two of many examples in the Old Testament. Again, we'll be studying Joshua tonight and the horrible incidents of the outbreak of faithlessness and disobedience before Joshua takes over the reins from Moses. I hope you'll join us tonight. Numbers 27, verse 18. Notice what the Lord says. Now, this isn't an unbeliever like Pharaoh. This is the Lord saying this. In Numbers 27, 18, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. And we could go over and over again. We could speak of Othniel and Jephthah and David and Moses and Gideon and Samson and the 70 elders and on and on and on. And so any claim that says, well, believers in the Old Testament weren't indwelt by the Holy Spirit is just completely wrong-headed and factually faulty. Well, the seventh function of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was to equip individuals with skill and strength for creative achievements. We think of Bezalel and Aholiab in Exodus. These two men were probably the most gifted, versatile artists in all human history. They were silversmiths, goldsmiths, jewelers, stonecutters, woodcarvers, and they had superb gifts of teaching as well. And so the objection from our friends who are dispensationalists to, again, that is a rapidly fading erroneous theology, and for that we're thankful, have said the Holy Spirit didn't savingly indwell people in the Old Testament. Until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit only came upon special believers. Well, we read of Daniel in Daniel chapter 4 that he was indwelt. We see John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1, long before Pentecost, being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul makes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit essential to salvation. No one could be saved without the indwelling. And notice what we're told now back in our text in 1 Peter 1, verse 11. We're told the prophets all were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now let's dig in deeper and understand what the prophets did, because I want you to see the point, the, the crescendo that Peter is building to in this section in verses 9 through 12, is that you and I, now that we are in the new covenant, we walk in the sunlight of the full revelation of the new covenant where even the prophets in the old covenant walked in dim, shadowy, even darkness at time. Look what we're told in verse 10 of our text in 1 Peter 1. We're told that the Old Testament prophets inquired, searched, and prophesied of salvation by grace. We read, picking up the narrative at the end of verse 9, talking about the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time. The Old Testament prophets, Peter, uses language here that is some of the language that's used for gold miners. The Hebrew word, look at it there in verse 10 and 11. The word searching 
was used of a miner digging for gold. The Old Testament prophets pondered and diligently explored, carefully investigating in order to understand God's revelation of what lay before. And Peter tells us, look carefully at verse 10, what it was that those Old Testament prophets got so excited about. Peter tells us these prophets were particularly enamored with the grace that would come to you. They were saved by grace, by looking forward in faith to the Messiah to come. And they were given prophetic insights that the gracious salvation brought by the Messiah would be even more full, more rich, more free. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples this in Matthew 13? Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets desired to see what you see and didn't see it, and to hear what you hear and didn't hear it. These Old Testament prophets, Peter tells us, look at verse 10. They were great men, but their message was even greater and shouldn't be tied to the limits of their understanding. What, what Peter is saying is something fascinating. These men obediently prophesied what God told them, but they didn't fully grasp even what they were writing and saying. Did they prophesy the virgin birth of Christ? Certainly in Isaiah 7. Did they prophesy the birthplace of Christ? Certainly in Micah chapter 5. All told, there were over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. But these Old Testament prophets couldn't fully grasp, even though they faithfully recorded it, they couldn't fully grasp how a gracious God would bring complete forgiveness to undeserving sinners, and especially how Gentiles would be incorporated in the people of God. And look what it is they were deeply trying to understand. Now this gets to, even though they wrote it faithfully and recorded it carefully and obediently, look at what it was that gave them so much trouble. Look carefully at verse 11. We read, They were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicated when he testified beforehand these two things the sufferings of Christ, and the glories that would follow. Here comes their big dilemma. They were prophesying and they were searching, how can this work? That the Messiah who will come, were they looking and believing in the Christ to come? Certainly. But they were baffled by this, that the Messiah who would come on one hand would be a suffering Messiah. Look at what we're told in verse 11. And on the other hand, he would be a glorious Messiah. These Old Testament prophets, they studied the prophecies of the previous prophets, and they studied their own prophecies that God had given them to try and fathom the when and how fulfillment. But the running threads through all their Christological prophecies was this idea, that first the Messiah would suffer, then he would enter into glory. And that's a common feature of the New Testament. Do you remember what Jesus said after he had risen on that first Sunday when he's walking along the road to Emmaus? He turns to the two men he was walking with who hadn't yet recognized him. And he said, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then entered into his glory? So think with me for just a moment. Look at verse 11. What's meant when we're told that these prophets spoke of both the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow? 
The prophets think of the many cases where they prophesied the suffering of Christ long before it happens. In Zechariah 9, the prophet prophesied Christ's lowly, humiliating entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. They prophesied his betrayal by a close friend in Psalm 41. They prophesied in Isaiah 53, the text that Dan just read for you a moment ago, that he would be beaten and bruised. They prophesied in Psalm 22 that he would be mocked by wicked men and sped upon. They prophesied that his hands and feet would be pierced as well in Psalm 22. They prophesied in Isaiah 53 that he'd be crucified in the manner most designed to humiliate him by crucifying him between two thieves. And they prophesied in Zechariah 12 that his side would be pierced as one last final indignity. At the same time, the prophets in the Old Testament, and this is what caused the prophets to have such such a dilemma. They also, alongside that, they prophesied the glories of Christ. For example, in Psalm 16, they prophesied that the Messiah would rise from the dead. In Psalm 68, they prophesied that he would triumphantly ascend to heaven. They prophesied in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish an everlasting kingdom and reign on David's throne forever. They promised in Psalm 2 that he would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And in Isaiah 2, that the nations would all come streaming to Christ to be taught his ways and walk in his paths. The ultimate prophecy concerning the Messiah's glory was found in Daniel 7, where we're told that the Messiah would return, coming on the clouds of heaven. He would be given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. He would have a dominion that's an everlasting dominion that would never pass away and a kingdom one which would never be destroyed. This fact that the Old Testament prophets prophesied very clearly the sufferings of the Messiah in great detail. And they also prophesied the glories of Christ in great detail. This is what Peter's referring to in verse 11. This was the fact that confused so many in Jesus' day. They couldn't grasp how these two, the sufferings and the glory, could be true of the same Messiah. And so there's even a school of Judaism that said there will be two Messiahs, one that suffers and one that's glorious. Now, the reason why Peter tells us this motif, look carefully at verse 11 because your name is all over verse 11. The reason Peter relates this motif that the, the portrait of Christ, that the prophets had said, first his humiliation, then his exaltation, is the exact same pattern for your life. First the cross, then the crown. First the suffering and sadness, then the unfading and imperishable inheritance of glory. Peter is telling this to people who are then, at that time, suffering under Nero-Roman persecution. And so Peter's drawing the inference for them. He's saying, I'm telling you this up front and at the beginning of my epistle, your Jesus, your Savior, it was prophesied and then fulfilled. First he suffered, then he knew the glory. And so believer spread out all over the Roman Empire. Now you're suffering, that's what comes first. Then the glory And so Peter is saying to his readers, our present sufferings, your present sufferings, 
are not a sign that Jesus has betrayed us or that he's no longer Lord. Rather, it's a sign of our union with Christ. We are united to Christ. We're being conformed to his image. And so his pattern is our pattern. Current suffering now is only a sign that future glory awaits. Now look at verse 12 in our text. Peter makes the point that the Old Testament prophets knew they were writing for future believers. Did you hear that? The Old Testament prophets knew they were writing for future believers. Look what he says in verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us. Look at that. That's a profound statement about authorial intent on the part of the Old Testament prophets. They knew this. They knew that they weren't writing for themselves, but for believers who would come for hundreds and even thousands of years after them. They were writing not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. And the point that Peter is making is you and I, new covenant believers, new covenant hearers, are the recipients and heirs of the full message of the prophets, the least disciple of Jesus. And perhaps you think of yourself that way today. But my friend, listen to me carefully. This is not an idle boast. The least disciple of Jesus in the new covenant, having in his hand the completed and full canon of scripture, and that's what you hold in your hand right now, is in a far better position to understand Old Testament revelation than the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Peter addresses this point over and over again. Not only does he say it in his epistle, he preaches this point. Look back to Acts chapter 2, Peter's first sermon he ever preached after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Look at Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This is the same Peter who's writing for us in 1 Peter 1, is preaching. This point so grips Peter as a brand new understanding, new covenant believer. Look what he says in Acts chapter 2. Peter here is quoting Psalm 16. And in Acts 2.29, remember this is Peter's first sermon after the death and resurrection of ascension. And listen to what Peter wants to stress. He says in Acts 2.29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, so Peter's, you notice he's, he's enamored with this theme of the Old Testament prophets. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this. Do you hear what Peter says? He says, David, as a prophet a thousand years before the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, he foresaw this. He foresaw all the redemptive elements of our Lord's saving ministry. Now, at the very end of our text, back in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, there's a tiny little phrase that should give you immense joy this morning. When Peter's talking about all of these things that the prophets prophesied, not even understanding fully, but they were for us, Peter says this at the close of this context. He says, by the way, believer, 
These are things which angels desire to look into. We know little about angels, and for the person who tries to weave an elaborate theology of angels, usually it's mostly speculation and silliness. We know little about angels. They are pure spirits, and the elect angels who have not fallen in Satan's rebellion have been confirmed in righteousness. And what is it that evokes curiosity among the elect angels? Look at that dangling clause at the end of verse 12. They have an intense longing to grasp something. The details of verses 9 through 12. They have an intense longing to grasp this. Solus Christus, sola fide, sola gratia. To grasp the depths of Jesus only, how we are saved by faith and how we are saved by grace. They investigate these matters. The angels have a deep interest in human salvation. We're told in Luke 15 that they rejoice every time a sinner is converted. And they will lead the rejoicing at the completion of redemption. Let me remind you what it is we are told about the angels throughout all eternity. In Revelation chapter 5, John says this, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. What is it the angels want to talk about? We hear these words. They're all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then we hear it again. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. There was even a picture of this angelic interest of salvation in the Old Covenant. Let me show you what that picture is. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, was placed in the very center of Israel's redemptive life, behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the, the blood of a, of a spotless lamb, and he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the mercy seat. And when God looked down on his law, the Ten Commandments were there in the Ark of the Covenant. When God looked down on his law, he didn't see his shattered commandments. He saw the blood of the lamb, and he forgave his people. The fulfillment of this type, of course, was when Christ died once for all the sins of his people and took away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But you remember what was carved into each end of the Ark of the Covenant? Two winged cherubim, angels, were carved into the Ark. And you remember their pose? Their pose is what's important for us interpretively this morning. These two cherubim were looking down in interest, in wonder, on the mercy seat which had been sprinkled with the blood of the spotless lamb. Those two cherubim were studying this amazing gospel picture of God's broken law sprinkled with blood, therefore God's people are forgiven. The elect angels are so curious because there is no plan of redemption for fallen angels. The elect angels don't need to be washed or forgiven. They've never experienced grace and mercy because they've always lived sinless lives. Jesus died to redeem fallen 
men and women, not the angels. We're told in Ephesians chapter 3, on the contrary, the angels learn about salvation from the church. The angels marvel at the drug dealer turned into a minister. The blasphemer whose mouth is now used for praising God. Humans alone can experience the wonders of God's saving grace. And the angels take this deep interest, we're told at the end of verse 12, in the gospel. Because they know this. They know that God is glorified in saving men, and whatever glorifies him brings them the greatest joy. How do we apply this word? Notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say in verses 9 through 12 that the Old Testament prophets were preoccupied with the advances of technology. They weren't looking forward to the appearance of electricity or air travel or personal computers. Because nothing compares remotely in importance to the sufferings of Jesus and the glories that follow. Look carefully at the text in verse 11. What is it that the prophets were immersed in? The sufferings of Jesus and the glories that follow. Freedom and prosperity and gadgets in this world are worthless if one misses the glories to come. Better to be blind, paralyzed, and poor in this world if you may only experience the glories to come that are all in Christ. I would tell you as well, by way of application, believer, you are the most blessed persons in history. You know things the prophets never knew. You have experienced a gracious salvation that even the angels cannot even fully grasp. And so I would tell you how thankful you should be this morning that God has sovereignly cast your lot in the new covenant after the death of Christ and his resurrection. My friend, this text tells us that you are the envy of Old Testament prophets and angels. And look at the end of verse 12. If angels love to study God's saving work, how much more should we, who are actually the beneficiaries of that salvation, not just onlookers, how much more should we love to examine and marvel at God's redemptive wonders? You are the envy of prophets and angels. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, this morning our hearts overflow with gratitude that you'd given us a full, complete revelation of your saving and sanctifying work, that you have preserved for us pure and inerrant this word, and that you have given us the Holy Spirit to testify to us and guide us into all truth. This morning we especially praise you for revealing to us and in us those glorious truths of salvation that even angels seek to understand. So indeed, let us now come to the table of the Lord with understanding and faith. We pray in the name of Jesus, our only Savior. Amen.